Hello, and welcome to The Real Writing Process. I'm your host, Tom Pepperdine, and this week, my guest is the murder mystery author, Tom Hindle. Tom writes murder mystery novels, and not just murder mystery novels, but really good murder mystery novels. I think it's a very hard genre to do well, but Tom nails that balance between high concept with compelling characters that you just need to keep turning the page. Fittingly, it's a dark and stormy night in England when I've released this episode, and there's an unsolved murder on the news. Is this a work of an overzealous marketing push by his publishers? Who's to say? What I will say, though, his latest book, Murder on Lake Garda, is out now, and I loved it. I also love this interview, as I feel that he's in his up-and-coming stage of his career. It's really exciting to talk to him. I'm sure you'll love it too, so wrap up warm, get cosy, have a drink to hand, and enjoy my interview with the veritable Tom Hindle. And I'm here this week with Tom Hindle. Tom, hello. Hello. Lovely to have you on the show. Thank you for being here. Thank Uh, you for having me. Well, yes. And I know that you're not feeling too well. So we have something medicinal, I know, for our first drink. Uh, Can you tell me uh, what we're drinking? Uh, I have a single measure of my favorite whiskey, which is a lovely glass of Aberfeldy, which Ooh, is yes. is going down very nicely. And I, I will never say no to a whiskey. So cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Oh, there we go. That's warming. Because um, just for the listeners, it's a very cold January night. Mm-hmm. Quite fitting for a murder mystery, but maybe not this murder mystery that you've just <laughs> coming out. Murder on Lake Garda, which I absolutely loved. Now... It's quite, uh, I'll just go straight into it because I think around this book, especially, it's got quite a fun story about how you came up with the idea for it. So do you just want to sort of tell us how you came up with Murder on Lake Garda? Yeah, of course. So it it came quite unexpectedly. So I was on holiday with my wife in Italy. We were at Lake Garda and we were going around a castle, this amazing castle in a beautiful little town called Melchisene, right on the, the, the shores of the lake. And um, we saw a wedding that was taking place and it was just such a, a spectacle. I don't know, you had the glamour of the event, you had the amazing landscape with the mountains and the lake and you had the architecture of the castle. And I remember quite vividly just looking at it and thinking if someone was murdered right there, <laughs> that would just be the most incredible start to a mm. murder mystery. And um, I actually, I took a photo of it. So there was a watchtower that you could climb or like a oh, clock tower or some kind of tower yeah. in, in this castle. And we were at the top of it. And so we were looking down on this wedding, which was happening mm. in one of the courtyards. And I, I took a picture and the picture captured everything. It had the ceremony, it had the lake behind it, it had like the walls of the castle. And uh, I took a picture on my phone and I got back to the UK a few days later, home from our holiday. And I sent that picture to my agent and my editor, which isn't typically, I think, how you pitch a new idea for a book. But I just sent them the picture and I just said, idea for a book. Mm. You're at this wedding and someone is murdered. And that's the opening chapter. What do you think? And they both replied just saying, yes, go and, <laughs> go and, go and write this, please. And that was, that was how it came about. So I wasn't, I wasn't looking for it. I certainly didn't expect it. And it just, it just came. Mm. And at the time, if I understand correctly, you were in the middle of, well, you just started writing another book. Yeah, that's right. So I was writing a book that was going to be set in rural Yorkshire. So I was really interested in the idea of a murder taking place at a funeral. And I was, I, I was really, I was really interested in this question of why, why would someone be murdered at a funeral and, and sort of what's the story there? And the setting I had settled on was 
a, a very remote church in rural Yorkshire. So I'm from Leeds. So I grew up all around the Yorkshire countryside. So I know it quite well. And I, I had what I thought was quite an exciting image of, of this story playing out. And I'd, I'd spent a good few months, you know, plotting it out, working out who all the characters were. And I'd written a good few thousand words of it. But then we went to Italy and <laughs> I saw the wedding and yeah. I came back and it was, it was weird because there was part of me that thought, okay, this will be my fourth book. So I'm going to finish the Yorkshire yeah. book first and then I'm going to come on to Lake Garda and that'll be the next one I do. Because of course I had a deadline that I needed to hit and, you know, the idea of completely scrapping a few months work and losing all that time because there was no scope to move the deadline to accommodate for a new idea. That just didn't seem very appealing. But after, you know, a few more weeks... I just kept on in my head coming back to the Italian idea. And after, I say after a few weeks, it just occurred to me to know what, this is, this is the stronger idea. And so I ended up dropping the Yorkshire murder at the funeral idea and picking up Lake Garda and, and just going full steam ahead with that. Yeah. And I think sometimes you, know, you really want to have a lot of research when it's a real location mm. and you'd been there once. Was it then you were able to sort of wrangle like, oh, I need to do another trip just to check some things with the publishers? Or was it then just like, okay, I've got that photo, I've been there, and I've walked the streets, and a lot of it's more in memory and Google? Yeah, a bit of both. I mean, I did I did put a, some fairly serious thought into going back for mm. another trip. But again, the time just didn't yeah. allow in the end. Obviously, as you do when you go on holiday, we took a ton of pictures, loads of videos. Mm. The place was still very fresh in my mind as well, because okay. of course we'd just come back. And to be honest, I, I watched a lot of YouTube videos. I mean, YouTube is proving over the course of my writing <laughs> career so far to be the most valuable yeah. source of research. I mean, there are videos on YouTube. I think people must just get GoPros and just walk mm. really slowly around places. Just search on YouTube for mm. a place you're interested in and the word walk around and someone yeah. will have gone and wandered around with a GoPro. So I spent a lot of time watching those sort of videos of, of places that we'd been, but just again, trying to refresh them in my memory. But no, it would have been nice to go back. And I, I did think about it, but mm. I think I just thought, I just need to crack on and, <laughs> and write this thing rather than coming up with an excuse to go on another little jaunt to Italy, as nice as that would have been. Yeah. So you were contracted for your third book. Uh, how long did you have from yeah, that decision to actually having to turn in a draft? So I turned in the draft in April. So it was April of last year, so April 2023. So we went to Lake Garda in May, towards the end okay. of May. And then, as I say, there was probably a good month of wrestling with the, mm. the Garda idea and carrying on with the Yorkshire idea. So it's probably around July that I actually okay. decided I was going to shift to Lake Garda. But as I say, you know, there was no there was no story or anything like that. It was just the yeah. concept. It was just the idea of a wedding in a castle in Lake Garda. Um, yeah. There was no characters, there was no no murder victim, no mm. kind of motive, none of that. All of that needed to be worked out. I mean, I'm sure we'll get into this, but like one of the few things I really need to know before I can write one of these things is mm. is who the killer is. Like I know there are some fantastic crime writers who just step off and see where the book takes them and they kind of solve the crime while they're writing it. I don't work like that. You know, I need to know who, who is going to be unmasked as the killer. So. It's probably around July that I decided, okay, I'm going to change and I'm going to do Lake Garda instead. And then there was a good month or two of just working out what actually is the story here. Like who are these characters, whose wedding is it, who is being murdered and why. So I probably didn't actually get properly stuck into writing it until yeah. the end of that summer. And as I said, I delivered it in the following April. Yeah. No, that's, that's an amazing turnaround. 
And uh, like you said earlier, it was the concept that initially grabbed you and that's where it developed from. And then you think about the the characters that populated it. Yeah. One thing that I really liked and really stood out for me is how well realized the characters and the motives were. And in the best sort of murder mystery sense, there's a lot of people who have plausible motives that could have done it. Is that a real fun element for you? Is that a real challenge coming up with all the different characters and making them distinct and having their own voice? It, it is challenging. I mean, it's it's part of the genre, isn't it? Um, it's just part of the fun, I suppose, of these sorts of stories. I mean, the way that works for me is I, I reverse engineer my stories. So I, I usually start with like a bit of a what if. So in this case, the, the what if was what if someone was murdered this incredible wedding. And then I kind of backtrack a bit from there. So I'll ask, okay, well, whose wedding is it? And then once I have an idea of who the bride and the groom are, I ask who's getting murdered. Once I have an idea of who the murder victim is, I then think, okay, well, what sort of people would this person have around them? Who are their friends? Who are their family? Who are their colleagues? Who do they work with? Who are their enemies? Who are their frenemies? And so it comes a little bit like that. And I guess the challenging thing, I suppose, is making sure everyone has a believable reason to want to kill whoever it is that's been killed. You know, I guess murdering someone is not exactly, it's not something you do every day. But then if there's only sort of one or two people in the story who have that believable reason to commit the murder, then it's not a very engaging read because people like to be able to read these things and, and suspect different characters throughout the book, I suppose. And if you're not doing that, well, I guess that's what I strive for. Yeah. And when you're mapping out these ideas and doing the plotting, doing the characters, are you someone who uses a phone app? Are you pen and paper? Have you got a laptop with like lots of different folders? How do you map out uh, all your plotting? I've become a little bit looser with this with every book. So with my first book, A Fatal Crossing, I planned it so rigidly that I actually had a spreadsheet showing where each of the characters were going to be at certain times because it takes place over, I think, three or four days, that book. And I had like a, a different tab for each day. And then within the tab, I had columns for for the different suspects. And I had, you know, I, I made a really complex map of where each of them were at any given time that I could refer to. But then over the course of the various different drafts and the editing process, most of that went out the window. So I've become a little bit looser. And I think I need to have an idea of who the characters are. So every character has to have kind of a want and a need and they have to have something kind of interesting about them. And I need to know, as I say, who the murderer is so I can build up to that. And I need to know the mechanics of how the murder has taken place. Usually I have a few touch points along the way. So I need to I need to know when these certain important clues are going to be found or if there's going to be a big kind of game-changing reveal or confession. I need to know sort of roughly where in the story that's going to be. Like, is it going to be about halfway through, three quarters of the way through? But, you know, once I have that idea of those touch points and I have a good idea of who these characters are, I just sort of trust myself to fill in the blanks and trust myself to get from one kind of important moment to the next and fill in those spaces as I go. And sometimes, you know, as I say, with the first book, I tried to be very, very rigid. Like I had a word document with chapter one and then three bullet points as to what happens in that chapter, chapter two, three bullet points. Whereas now I just kind of go for it. And sometimes that means I end up getting halfway through and realizing, oh, actually it'd be more interesting if this happened at this point of the book instead of this point of the book, or I get two thirds of the way through and I think, ah, what if this character's motivation was actually this and not this? And and you have to go back and tweak it again. So I do quite a lot of tweaking as I go. You hear about some writers kind of thrashing out 
a first draft within two or three months. That's not me. I mean, for context with Lake Garda, when I sent it off to my editor in April, there was a chapter in that draft that didn't exist when I woke up that morning, you know, oh, so wow. I am, yeah, <laughs> so I am genuinely, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a tweaker. I really do tweak yeah. as I go along rather than kind of splurging out this big draft and then spending however many months, you know, going back and rewriting it and editing it. The draft I send off usually is the first complete draft. Yeah. And it's unapologetically, you know, a classic murder mystery. You know, it's a fixed location. There's almost a ticking clock element to it as well. And so it, it has a very classic timelessness to it. Is that the genre that you want to build your brand around? Is that just something that you've obsessively read before writing? Or is it just for the moment it's murder mysteries, but you want to branch out into other things, maybe yeah. down the line? It's a funny one, really. So growing up, for example, my favorite cartoon when I was a kid was Scooby-Doo. So I, I really enjoyed all these stories that revolved around the idea of this big cast of characters and a bit of a whodunit and you know a rug pull at the end and a reveal of who the baddie is. And then when I got a little bit older, my favorite books were the Harry Potter series, which, you know, if you look at the first three or four of those in particular, are perfectly good murder mysteries. You know, they have a cast of suspects, they have clues, they have a big reveal of the baddie at the end. So I first tried to write A Facial Crossing when I was about 15 or 16, and the idea uh, a play that I could put on with some mates at school. And it wasn't going to be a, a whodunit at that point. I don't think there was actually a murder in it at all. It was going to be about a stolen painting, and it was going to be more of a, a kind of a crime comedy caper. I, I was watching a lot of Jeeves and Worcester and Frasier and that stuff, so that was that was the tone. It was all going to be on a cruise ship, just like happens in the book, and it was still going to be in the 1920s, and they're still going to be on their way to New York. Um, I think the painting was going to turn up rolled up inside an umbrella or something silly like that. So I wrote the first half of that play, and then my friends and I all finished school and went off to university, and the play obviously didn't happen. And then the idea for the story lived on a memory stick for, for quite a few years. And then when I was 24, I was given for Christmas a copy of Magpie Murders by Anthony Horowitz. Uh, I am a huge, huge Horowitz fan. Like I grew up reading the Alex Ryder books. I read the Diamond Brothers stories, which is probably some of my, I mean, the Diamond Brothers, for those who don't know, because I know they aren't quite as famous as Alex Ryder. They were about like a, a hapless PI and his really intelligent kid brother. So that was probably my first detective stories that I read. But anyway, so I got given this copy of Magpie Murders for Christmas, and that is a book of two halves, and the first half is this very Agatha Christie-esque Midsummer Murders-y, uh, the vicar is murdered on the day of the local vegetable show, that kind of vibe. And I'd, I'd not actually read any Agatha Christie at that point, so this was my first proper taste of that sort of golden age vibe. I remember reading it and just thinking, oh my goodness, this is what a fatal crossing could be with some adjustments. If we did it as a novel, obviously, instead of a play, if we try and make it a little less funny, because I tried to make it a comedy, which definitely didn't work. I've still got some of those pages and it is not at all funny. <laughs> and if we sort of make it slightly more of a murder mystery, so if we add a murder in there somewhere, then this is what a fatal crossing could be. And that was when I went out and I picked up a big stack of Agatha Christie novels. So I know you hear a lot of writers who, who write this sort of thing talk about mm. just plowing through Agatha Christie's when they were kids, like reading them all in mm. the summer. You know, that's the sort of thing you hear quite often. This was my first taste of Agatha Christie when I was about 25 and I was, I was writing A Fatal Crossing. So I wrote it and I signed a one book deal for that 
book and then it did relatively well and I was offered a deal for a couple more murder mysteries and I, I said yes because I had a fantastic time role writing it and that deal yielded the murder game and murder on Lake Garda and same again my publisher said do you fancy doing a couple more and I said yes absolutely because I'm still loving writing them so I'm very much enjoying writing the murder mysteries but it was never I don't know. I, I remember I always wanted to be a writer when I was a kid. I can remember writing lots of little stories of my own at home about, you know, characters in books and films that I'd, I was enjoying at the time. I can remember being, it was even my last year of primary school or first year of high school, one or the other, but you had to stand in front of the class and give a sort of five minute presentation about what you wanted to be when you were older. And I said, I wanted to be a writer. So the ambition was always there, but I don't think if you'd gone back and told me I would be writing whodunit. I, I, I don't think I'd have seen that coming. I think that would probably have come as a surprise, but I'm enjoying it. And um, yeah, of course, I've got ideas of, of other things I'd like to do. So I've got an idea for a ghost story that I'd really like to write at some point. I, I quite enjoy a lot of sci-fi. So you know, I, at some point, I might want to have a, a go at something like that. There are definitely other things I'd like to do, but I think I'm always going to have a murder mystery up my sleeve just because yeah. I'm, I'm really enjoying writing them. Yeah. Genuinely, I am. And I'm very lucky to to get to do it and you know I, I have ideas I mean I'm working on a fourth one right now I've got mm. an idea for a fifth one as long as I've got an idea for one yeah. I'm, I'm going to keep doing them and so with the one that you're working on at the moment are you still in the plotting stage are you sort of now drafting it out how far along are you so I delivered the first draft of it to my editor just before Christmas and she's read it and we've we've had a chat about where it kind of needs to go so, I mean, the process, I guess, for those who don't know, is you get like an edits letter, which is, I guess it's like an essay. The ones I, I usually get are between two and 3,000 words. And, you know, it, it contains a lot of detail about what's working and what's not. And you go away and you have a proper sort of formal round of editing that you have to then deliver by a deadline. So we're not there yet. We, we've had a chat, my editor and I, about her sort of initial thoughts and where I think we should try and adjust it when it comes to editing properly. So I'm playing around with it at the moment and I'm just gearing up for that edits letter to come and for the editing to start properly. But it's, yeah, it exists and um, and I'm, I'm quite excited about it. And when you're in the middle of a writing session, drafting, before it's uh, sent off, are you someone who makes sure to write every day? Do you have like set hours and do you have any sort of targets, either of just how many hours in front of the desk that you are there writing or a, a number of chapters or a word count? How do you structure a writing day? So I try and keep business hours. So I'm at my desk by eight most mornings and I, I work through till about sort of five or six, I guess for a few different reasons, one of which is I like to be online when I guess the people I work with are online. So if I need to sort of talk to my agent or well, Usually it's if they need to talk to me, <laughs> um, if, you know, it's if my agent needs to get in touch or my editor or my publicist or anyone like that, I like to, I like to feel like I'm online mm. when they are. I like to be online at the same time my wife is online so that I'm offline at the same time. I just, I feel like if I'm working in the evenings and the weekends and she's not working, that doesn't sound like a great recipe for a happy marriage. <laughs> Um, so yeah. And again, I, I like a bit of structure as well. So I think just working Monday to Friday, more or less mm. nine to five. So I'm, I'm writing full time now. Um, I stepped away from my day job about 18 months ago and those first few months, the total lack of structure really boggled my mind. Cause I mean, I worked in an office, I worked Monday mm. to Friday, nine to five. And, um, I was just used to, you know, on Monday mornings, we have this meeting on Tuesday afternoons, we have this call with this client and. You know, all of that going out the window. I genuinely, I found most days I woke up and I just didn't have a clue what day it was. And I just found having that structure of, okay, I am online 
during business hours, that is when I'm working. That is when I'm writing. I take weekends off. I just found that really helped me, I don't know, keep my head straight, I suppose. Um, but in terms of daily requirements, I mean, I try and get between one and 2,000 words done a day. As I say, I'm quite slow. I'm not someone who just blasts out a first draft within a couple of months, writes 5,000 words a day, and then goes back and rewrites it. I do tinker with it as I go along, and I do edit as I'm going along, and I might chuck out 5,000 words that I wrote last week, you know, because I've woken up on Monday and realized, actually, you know what, that section just doesn't work. And as we said earlier, that draft I sent to my editor genuinely had an entire chapter in it that I wrote that morning. It was a short chapter, you know, it was only a 1,000 <laughs> words long. I find I'm quite, I, I get into it quite slowly and I speed up a bit mm. as I go along. So I, I take quite a lot of time finding my way into the story and just mm -hmm. working out, you know, how is it going to be linear? Is it going to have a couple of timelines? Is it going to mm. be from just one character's perspective or are we going to have a few different narrators? At, at what point in the story do I start? So, I mean, Murdering Lake Garda, there was about a, a 10,000 word section that took place in the UK before traveling out to Italy, which... You know, that was the first thing I wrote and it ended up going because we just didn't need it. I, you know, I, I do aim for sort of a minimum of a thousand a day. I don't usually do more than 2000 because I say it's just not how I do it. I'm quite slow and steady and it seems to be working so far. And when you finish for the day, are you someone who likes to leave on a cliffhanger bit so you can pick it up in the morning? Do you want like a very closed off I, I have completed that scene or that section i've heard mythically i've never actually interviewed anyone who's done it but leaves it mid-sentence so to carry on the next day how do you like to leave a writing session yeah mid-sentence is a bit extreme but <laughs> yeah. i i do find it quite helpful to leave it sort of mid-chapter it's something i think i heard on a podcast like this about this time last year that, that idea of leaving a chapter midway through because you then don't have that problem of the blank page when you come back the next day it gives you a bit of a run-up i suppose if you just pick up something that you're working on the previous day rather than trying to start a completely new chapter so yeah usually it's midway through a chapter and then I'll, that's where i'll pick it up i find that quite helpful but no mid-sentences i mean <laughs> maybe it'll work maybe i'll try yeah. it tomorrow who knows there you go and when you pick it up do you just read the last few sentences just to remind yourself where you were or do you actually reread the whole thing you wrote the previous day because you said you tinkered so i wasn't sure like how much mm. you go back I, I guess it varies. Like, I mean, if I wrote a chapter the previous day that I know wasn't as good as it can be and needs some work, then maybe I'll go back and do that. If it's just a case of picking up where I left off, then I'll probably read what I wrote of that chapter. Mm. I mean, my chapters tend to be quite short. I mean, most of my chapters are usually somewhere between 1,500 and 2,500 words. So we're not dealing with like 5,000 word chapters. So if I've written half a chapter and then logged off for the day, that's probably only about 1,000 words for me to go back and and reread and i think as well it is quite helpful just to orient yourself in the chapter and in in the scene and just remind yourself exactly what it is that's going on because otherwise you might end up going and writing something that's completely unrelated to yeah. the first half of the chapter you wrote the previous day so yeah usually i'll go back and read something just to get back into the headspace do you ever have days where you come down and it's just really uninspired and how do you push through that feeling yeah, I mean, of course, some days you do come down and it, it just doesn't work. Sometimes I'll just try and push through. I mean, if there's a deadline coming up, then you kind of just have to push through. Sometimes I'll take myself for a walk. I mean, I, I know it's really simple, but genuinely, I did it today. Like I was struggling with something, just a, a small plot hole um, that I've come across in the new one. And I took myself for a walk 
put my phone on silent, didn't take my headphones to listen to any music or anything, just walked around with the problem. Within 20 minutes, I'd solved it. That happens quite a lot. Um, my thinking walks, as I call them, my wife quite often, if I'm getting sort of annoyed with something, my wife will send me on a thinking walk and say, <laughs> go and have a thinking walk. And it usually solves the problem. Sometimes I will just accept it's not working that day and I might just go and do something else. Like I might go work on another project or I might just take myself off and, and do something else entirely. Like I might watch an hour of something on TV and just clear my head. Sometimes it's indicative of a larger problem, I suppose. I mean, one of the best pieces of advice I've ever heard on how to deal with writer's block is that writer's block is what happens when you're trying to push the story in a direction it doesn't want to go. So if you're really, really having to force something and you've been struggling with it for a few days and taking your mind off it doesn't help or going on a thinking walk doesn't help, then that's usually when I stop and start to question, okay, is this actually, is this just wrong? Like, am I trying mm. to do something here that just doesn't fit? And um, sometimes it's a case of backtracking and trying to work out, okay, well, does this need to come out? Or does this need to change? Like the 10,000 word section in, in Lake Garda in the UK that we talked about a minute ago that I took out, that was similar. You know, I was going back over that, doing a bit of tweaking and tinkering as I do to just try and make it work. And I think that took me a couple of weeks to, to come to terms with just because of the number of words I was considering getting rid of. But yeah, after a couple of weeks, I found myself saying, this isn't working, it's got to go. And sometimes sometimes that's the answer. Yeah, well, they say kill your darlings, don't they? That's, that's the mm. phrase. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the opening I found was a real good hook. Oh, I, I felt that it really set the scene brilliantly and you're there and it's just, it's a really nice setup. So I can't imagine it not sort of starting how it starts. So that's really amazing that it had like that ah. prequel element. Wonderful. But it, Thank you. I would say it's the right decision. Having not read it, but how it starts now, I think, like you say, the story goes in the way it needs to go. And I think that opening setup works really well. Now, another thing I want to sort of talk about with struggling through writing is uh, imposter syndrome. And I know it's a thing that a lot of people can feel at some point through their writing process is yeah, that imposter syndrome that they're a terrible writer. Is that something that you've ever felt? And how did you deal with it? Yeah, I mean, quite regularly, I suppose. I mean, I'd say you know, a couple of days a week, I will look at the manuscript and think, this is the worst thing <laughs> that, that has ever been written by anyone ever. This is just, you know, you do look at it and just resent it almost and think what's an absolute load of crap. But then you work through it and then you have days when you look at it and you think, actually, this is quite good. <laughs> you know, and you feel pleased of how it's coming together. And it can be on and off like monday can be a really crap day and tuesday can be a oh this is quite good day and then wednesday it'll be crap again and then thursday it'll be better than it's ever been and then friday mm. it'll be god maybe i need to call this off because this is just, you know <laughs> so you you can have weeks like that and i think i probably didn't get it so much with a fatal crossing because that was that book was a hobby there was no agent or editor waiting for it and while I hoped it would be published you know it was it was a hope you know I, I didn't actually think it would happen so there wasn't a sense of imposter syndrome of a fatal crossing with the murder game that was slightly different because of course there was a publisher waiting for it then and people had been buying and reading a fatal crossing and quite enjoying it so there was a pressure to deliver something that that people would hopefully buy and enjoy again and uh, murder on Lake Garda even more so because now 
even more people have you know i got the, the wonderful update i think i put it on twitter towards the end of last year that since the paperback came out in the summer we'd sold fifty thousand copies of oh wow nice. murder game exactly that was my response so you know the thought that some of those people might have enjoyed that book enough to go and by murdering Lake Garda when it mm. comes out. Yeah, of course, there's a there's a huge amount of pressure to deliver something that people are, are going to enjoy and, and find some value in. And, you know, I think that is probably what drives the, uh, the days when you look at the manuscripts and you think this just isn't good enough. I mean, for me, certainly, it's just a case of trying to push those <laughs> voices deep down and just rest assured in the knowledge that when I wake up tomorrow, I might look at it and think, actually, do you know what? i I didn't need to feel that way because looking at this now, it's perfectly good. And I think as well, part of it for me is trying not to think about how other authors work. Mm -hmm. So I know that for some authors, it's really helpful to to kind of meet up and to compare how many thousands of words you've written that day or, you know, just to talk about other people's processes. I find my problem is I compare myself. I find it very... like interesting to listen to other people and sometimes I will pick up something that genuinely helps me so like we were talking about earlier with the leaving a chapter halfway through mm. <laughs> um, and picking it up the next day but if I'm having like a bad day a day where I'm looking at the manuscripts and thinking I am no good at this what am I doing then I, I try and stay away from Twitter and places where I know people are going to be talking about what they're doing because those are going to be the days when I'll look at it and I'll think oh my goodness this person says they've written two and a half thousand words today yeah what am I doing what what gives me any kind of mm. uh, authority to, to to think that I could I could write a book um so I think I, it's just a case of on the days when I am looking at it and I'm thinking this this is not working uh, I know I need to sort of insulate myself a little bit and just get my head down and and just keep going on the work and mm. just trust that it, it is going to come together because I've done this three times now yeah. and experience now shows that it, it does come together, you know. But of course, imposter syndrome. When you know that there are people out there reading something that you've created and enjoying mm. it, and occasionally you get a message on Instagram, someone saying, "I'm really excited to buy your new book when it comes out in a few months," which is wonderful. I'm very grateful, but it is impossible sometimes not to get a sense of, "Oh man, what if these people twig the fact that I'm, I'm just an idiot making stuff up in my kitchen?" <laughs> like it's um. Yeah, so it's it's not a constant thing. For me, it is a case of days when you think this is great and days when you think this is awful and people are going to be angry when they spend money on this and, and realise. But it's just a case of trying to stay positive and focus on those good days and just trust that it will come together because, as I say, experience shows it does. Yeah, that's, that, that's a great answer. Thank you. And going on to editing now, you mentioned earlier how you're a tinkerer and you like to sort of tinker as you go. Also, I know, and I listened to an interview where you were talking about the murder game, that you very much had this process where the first draft is just get the story down. The second draft is make it readable. And the third draft is make it good. And I was just wondering, is that still the case? Would you say you're still kind of doing it in that three-stage process? Or is it a bit more flexible now that you're tinkering more? So... With Murder on Lake Garda and the one I'm working on at the moment, I've had less time, so the deadlines have been slightly tighter. And you know, with Murder on Lake Garda, as you know, we've gone over, that was self-induced by, by spending the first two, three months working on another book. Mm -hmm. um, so I think 
you know, that was probably the case with the murder game and it's probably been less so with Late Garda. As I say, Late Garda, I was tinkering with it. I was adjusting it. I was throwing bits out, adding new bits in. So, you know, I didn't have a complete draft until the minutes I sent it to my editor. But I think it probably still applies in the sense of I still think the actual doing a proper edit on it is when a book really comes into its own. I think I found that with Garda and I'm finding it now as I gear up to to edit my fourth one. So yes, I'll get that, that first draft while it, you know, it involves a lot of tinkering and um, a lot of sort of work on it, adjusting it and playing around with it while I'm putting it together. It is just a case of putting it together. And then yes, that second draft when it comes to, to editing it, I think that is when I'm most likely to get to the end and look at it and think, this is something I can imagine on a shelf with a cover and and people buying. So yeah, I think that's probably still fair to say. Okay, that's good. And when you finished it in isolation, who's the first person to read it next? Does it go straight to your agent, your editor, your your wife uh, has a pass? Who reads it first after you've finished? So with Garda and the new one, it has been my editor, again, because of time. Mm. So in an ideal world, it would go to my agent first and he would make sure it's it's kind of up to scratch mm. before it goes to my editor. But again, self-induced of late Garda, I lost three months at the beginning mm. and you know the deadline was the deadline. It couldn't be moved and I finished it that first draft as we say a few minutes before the deadline so um yeah so it's been my editor and it's been the same with the fourth one see i sent it to her shortly before christmas and again i started writing that one in june so that was uh, another pretty speedy turnaround for me so yeah it was a case of writing it right until the minute and and sending it off and and she was the first person it goes to so my my wife does like to read them as well i do usually stick them on a kindle and and she reads them while my editor is reading them so they kind of read them at the same time but yeah my editor is is the first person it goes to and is it the same editor that you had since the murder game or is it right from the fatal crossing when did this editor sort of come on yeah, right from Fatal Crossing. So it's my my editor, Emily. So she's been my editor on all of them. And she is excellent. And she picks out all the things that need changing and has a very keen eye that I'm, I'm very grateful for and has been very important to making sure those books are as good as they are. Yeah, I feel that editors are really the unsung heroes. And it, it is a partnership yeah. because they really do help you bring your voice to the fore and get the story that you you want to tell I with a good editor at least and before you were writing uh you were a copy editor so I worked for a PR agency public relations agency so I was doing a lot of different things I was doing kind of press mm. relations I was doing social media I was doing a bit of event management but yes a lot of copywriting so the copywriting was was really what I I got into it for I mean we, we talked already when I was a kid I wanted to be a writer and when I was in uni I was coming the end of my degree I studied English language I was looking at roles that would let me write for a living and I thought copywriting might be a a good sort of route to go down and I knew that if I got a job in a PR agency I'd spend a lot of time doing copywriting. So has that made you quite resilient to editors notes or is it still a a hit where you need a stiff drink maybe another shot of whiskey uh, before you (laughs) reflect or is it just like great give me feedback and this will help the manuscript get better. Like, how, how do you react when you first get those notes? Oh, I mean, there's never a bad reason to have a shot of whiskey, I would, <laughs> I would say. Um, no, I, I'd say it has made me pretty resilient. I think it's more 
learning how to take that kind of feedback and learning not to take things personally and learning when to push back on things. Because, yeah, everything I wrote in the agency would go through a manager first, usually mm-hmm. a, a kind of an account manager, and then it would go to the client and there would always be a, a few rounds of feedback. I mean, I've worked in PR agencies for about eight years, so I had quite a few years of learning how to, to take that and deal with it and just respond to it in a very practical way and I think that has absolutely helped I mean it's interesting it's similar but different I suppose with a book because I mean it's it's on a much bigger scale it's something you are more personally and emotionally mm. invested in and something I try to always do now when I mean we talked a bit about the edits letter and what that looks like when it comes through and I make myself just sit with it for a couple of days before I do anything because quite often I will read the edits letter and I'll think not sure about that or I'll read a comment and go I haven't quite understood that maybe I I need to give him a call and we'll talk about this and you know I get to the end and I I usually sort of feel a bit like "Mm, I'm I'm not sure about a lot of this and then I sit with it for a day or two and I wake up and I think bloody hell everything in that edits letter is absolutely completely spot on so yes I think that is that is kind of part of my process I guess if you like is I need to sit with it and just ruminate on it and just think I mean a big part of the editing process for me is just thinking it's Mm. just sitting with the problems going on those thinking walks just letting it sit in your head and working out what the answer to these problems might be but yeah to answer your question working in that copywriting role for Mm. eight years or so definitely gave me some skills that I think has helped with the books. And just moving a bit further into the end and wrap up of your stories, because like I say with Lake Garda, you finished it in April. It's now coming out in January mm. and you start the following book, June, July, and you now just put it in for the edits in December. So there's mm-hmm. very tight sort of turnarounds. When you finish a project, like Lake Garda was like signed off. Okay. It's going for the printers and all of that. Is there a sense of relief of like, I've done it great onto the next one. Or is there an element of grief of you've you know, created these characters, like Robin's like a really nice central character in these relationships and don't want to spoil the ending, but you can feel that there's a continuation of their story, which is up for the reader, which I like. So is it a, a relief to finish or is it grief to finish? It's not grief as such. I mean, it's, I guess there's a little bit of relief because yeah, I'd say I start off quite slowly and I speed up. And by the time I'm sort of in a month or two um, of the deadline, I mean, we talked to me about my working hours, all kind of notion of working hours go out the window and it's it's evenings and it's weekends and it's just frantically trying to get the last sort of chunk of this first draft done. So yeah, usually there is a little bit of a, a sense of relief just that it, it is done and it's out in the world now. It's going on to that sort of next stage. There's, I guess there's a little bit of sadness to to leave those characters behind especially if there's one that you get quite attached to like I really enjoyed being in the world of Murder on Lake Garda it was it was just a fun place to be and to be writing about and as you say Robin I'm really glad you liked Robin as a character I, Robin might be my favourite of the kind of protagonists that I've written um, and I think the the villain if you like or the villains of this story are, are some of my favourites so yeah it's a bit of a shame to leave them behind but usually I end up deciding on I for my next book uh, sort of a few months before I finish usually a really inconvenient moment when I'm head down and really need to be focusing on finishing the book I'm currently working on that is when I start getting excited about an idea for the next book so 
usually it's a sense of excitement because I'm thinking to myself, ah, oh, thank goodness I can crack on with this new book that I've been wanting to write for a few months now and I really want to get stuck into. So yes, there is usually a little bit of sadness, maybe a little bit of relief, but more than anything, I'm I'm thinking, right, it's time to get started on something new and that that's always very exciting. And yeah, I'm really glad that Robin's one of your favourite characters as well. With Anthony Horowitz and with Agatha Christie and referencing Harry Potter, they're all series. And yep. in Murder Mystery, having a central character solving multiple mysteries, is that something that appeals to you in the future? Because these are all great standalone, but yep. is there that temptation? And have you started developing one just in the background, just simmering away? Or is that something that you're not interested in? So, I mean, my take on this is that to have a series, I need a character who can develop over that series. I need a character who justifies multiple stories to to tell their own story as a person. You know, it's all very well having a load of lovely crimes for them to solve, but also what about those characters? Mm-hmm. I think one of the best examples that at the moment, I've just finished reading The Ink Black Heart, the Strike books. Oh. And that, yeah, the, the relationship between Strike and Robin, that is what people come back to those books for. Like the crimes are great, but people come back to see these characters and their lives and what's going to happen for them next away from the murder mysteries. And I think I would totally be open to a series once I hit on a character who I think justifies having that multi-book story. Mm. Um, So I think it will happen one day. What I quite like about the standalones for now is that it gives you a totally blank canvas Mm. with each book. You can go wherever you want in the world, any time period, any place. I I like discovering these new characters of every book, you know, like this character of Robin. We won't see her again. This is her story now, but also I've enjoyed spending that time. And I I like an ending as Mm. well. I really like getting to the end of a book. And, you know, as you say, we leave it not quite ambiguous, but there is the hint that their their story as people is going to continue and the reader can kind of do with that what they will. And I like that. Personally, I think it's a little bit easier to get emotionally invested in these characters when you get to the end and you're like, right, this is your story. This is your lot. Do with it what you will. There is no, oh, but maybe in the next book they'll reconcile or they'll fall out or whatever. This is your story. And I like being able to sit and just process that. And it, I think it makes me think a little bit more deeply about what it is that has happened to these characters over the course of the books mm. and over this is their story. There is no next time for these guys or to be continued. It's a case of this is what's happened to them. This is the people they are now versus the people who are at the beginning of this book. And and that's your lot. <laughs> so so the standalones are, are working for me quite well at the moment. And uh, as I say, I like going to all these different locations. Garda was very, very different to the Devon Hotel in the murder game, which was different again to the cruise ship, which, believe me, is very different to what I'm doing for book four and what I'm planning to do for book five. So I, I'm enjoying these kind of globe-trotting different locations for each one. So maybe there will be a series one day. It's just it's hitting on that character. Cool. cool. Now, final two questions. It's my belief that writers continue to grow and develop their writing with each story that they write. Was there anything in particular that you learned from writing Murder on Lake Garda that you're now applying to your latest project? Being 
open to getting rid of things, I suppose. I know we've talked about it a couple of times already, but that, that 10,000 word chunk that I threw out at the beginning, it was interesting because it, it really helps me get to know who some of these characters mm. were. I mean, I, I guess I can say because it's not spoilerific and no one's going to read it anyway because it's gone. But those 10,000 words, they were all about Robin and Toby, who are our mm. two central characters in Murder and Legarda meeting. And it was about, you know, th- those chapters showed their first meeting. It showed their first date. It showed, oh, wow. you know, the, the kind of beginning of their relationship, which when I was writing it, I thought you needed mm. because I thought you needed to see how these characters came together and you needed a bit, you need to see a little bit more of them as a couple to really kind of buy into Robin's place in the story. But, you know, once I'd written a good chunk of, you know, probably the rest of the book, I realized actually you don't need this. This is covered elsewhere. So it was helpful to write that. It was a good exercise, isn't it? Yeah, I was just thinking mm. it's as the author, knowing that backstory really helped. Yes, exactly. But then hitting delete and getting rid of that whole 10,000 word chunk was the right thing to do. And it's the first time I've actually done that. Like, you know, Fatal Crossing, the murder game, there was the odd thousand words here and there that needed to go, but there was not a a 10,000 word chunk that needed to be deleted from those. So being brave enough to delete things, even if they're kind of a little bit helpful, just recognizing what does the story need and being led by the story. I, I think I've learned from Garda that I'm brave enough to <laughs> to, no. to do that rather than to fight for something that I know shouldn't really be there. No, that's great. And is there one piece of advice you find yourself returning to with your own writing? Gosh, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> just lump that right at the end. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it, you know, coming back to the question of the imposter syndrome and the days when it's it's all just feeling bad and you feel like mm. you can't do it or like you shouldn't be doing it. I think it's just trusting in the process and just getting your head down and just doing the work. I try very hard to put on a good show on social media for people and mm. to, to reply to all of people's comments when they say lovely things and to make sure I'm putting interesting things out. But you've got to knuckle down and do the work <laughs> at the end of the day it's all about books you know people mm. come for good books and that's what people are here for so yeah i think just getting down and focusing on the work you know the work has to come first the books yeah. have to come first if you aren't writing first and foremost what are we here for so yeah that would probably be it just just getting getting the work done that, that's great well tom hindle you've been absolute pleasure thank you very much for being my guest this week thank you for having me it's been great And that was my interview with Tom Hindle. If you like how he talks, you should see how he writes. Equally good and engaging. And if you'd like to check out his books, I do recommend them. Go to your nearest bookshop and pick up a copy. I know it's horrible weather, but it's really good escapism and you won't regret it. If you'd like to check out his social media, then I recommend you follow his Instagram account, tom.hindle, where you can see his lovely youthful face and pictures of his cat. But a quick Google and you can find everything else. And that's it for this week. I say week, I really mean month, but it's my birthday in a few days and I need time to read the books before the interviews. Got some great ones lined up though. So until next time, stay healthy, try getting out of the house at least once a week and keep writing until the world ends. Time can never be your trusted friend or your sworn ally.